Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. My name's Dave. It's nice to meet you. Well, it's been a while. It's been like six weeks since I've been behind this pulpit. I have been really itching to get back and bring uh, open God's Word to our church family. Every time the kids leave, I'm reminded that they are one-third of our congregation. It, it's amazing how much emptier the room feels once those kids leave. Well, wh- one of the things about leaving is I'm constantly thinking about home when I'm away. And uh, what, I've been really, really wanting to get back into the series. Uh, I, I don't know if you re- even remember what the series is. It's called Life on Life. And really what we're talking about, it was a really great mini-series that um, Pastor Jared and Pastor Stan got to do on building community together. And really, community is not some buzzword that talks about a fuzzy feeling we have. It is something that is the, the result of a very sacrificial, very intentional posture in our lives. I think it's important to remember that throughout this series, that when we talk about life-on-life ministry, we're not talking about what somebody else does. It's about a fundamental shift in the way that you come to this church. It is a change in the foundational attitude with which you say you are part of Harvest Community Church. So that if you begin by saying, I will really touch the life of another person in this church, I will really start to get involved, make an investment, reach out, take initiative. Something will change in the way it feels to be a part of this church family. And so I'm excited about getting back into this series. This morning, uh, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20. And the title of the message is, A Holy Command. I love looking at 1 and 2 Timothy because it paints the picture of, of what I think is a very good model relationship for life-on-life ministry. It's the Apostle Paul and his spiritual protege, Timothy, relating to one another as Paul imparts or passes along the torch of spiritual leadership, of followership of Christ. It really is, in a spiritual sense, the ideal picture of what it means for a father to pass a legacy on to a son. And somewhere in there is the spirit of what life-on-life ministry should be driven by. And if you look at their relationship, it was always marked by a lot of positive things, encouragement, empowerment, affirmation, and instruction. Paul was always trying to build Timothy up. But every now and then, Paul also opened up another important dimension of their relationship, and that was the exercise of his spiritual authority over Timothy's life. And I think that's something that we're losing a little bit in our world today, this idea of authority that is healthy, that is welcomed, that is viewed as a good thing. You know, we live in a a culture, in a society that really prizes our self-determination, our independence, don't we? I mean, don't tread on me was one of the founding models of this country. And even our children have learned to say, you're not the boss of me. Have your kids ever said that to you? If you have kids, have they ever said, you're not the boss of me? That statement perfectly captures the spirit of America. 
It's, you don't get to tell me what to do. I decide for myself everything because ultimately I don't answer to anyone else. That is fundamentally what it means to be American. And I don't want to forfeit very much of that. I think that is what makes this nation great. And some of that has to be clung to. But we've got to be careful about developing a cynical or allergic reaction to the use of authority in one another's lives. I think one of the most loving things that Paul did in Timothy's life from time to time was to say to him, this particular matter is not open to debate. Any of you guys watch Friday Night Lights? Okay. I am in season five, and my absolutely least favorite character in that show is the coach's daughter, Julie Taylor. She is this little ball of self-centeredness. Everything she does, every motivation of her life is for herself. And her mother, I just feel like, constantly allows her to keep doing this. And every now and then, I just wish, just once, her mother would lay down the law and say, I am the authority. She tries a couple times. But I got to tell you that I think one of the most loving things we can do for someone when it matters is to tell them, honey, this particular thing, it is not open to debate. It's not good for you to think this is one of those optional matters in life, that somehow you're going to find your way to a healthy, prospering, flourishing life by ignoring this particular thing. This truth is one of those non-negotiable truths. It matters absolutely that you line your life up with this. Now, we got to be careful not to overuse that one because when everything matters supremely, nothing matters, right? So we have to pick and choose the times when we really exercise our authority over people's lives. But it is one of the most loving things we can do when it matters. Now, you've got to bear with me. I I gave away my iPad when I was in Indonesia to somebody who needed it more than me. And I haven't used paper sermon notes in like, feels like 10 years. So I'm going to try getting through this. I, I want to just walk you through what life on life looks like as one person entrusts a holy command to another person. Look at what this passage says. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to a faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. When you look at verse 18, the very language sparks thoughts of the military context. And in fact, that's intentional. Paul is using very militaristic language in this particular passage. What he's saying to Timothy is, right now, I'm not your buddy, Paul. I am your commanding officer, Paul. It's important that you understand that what I'm about to say to you comes with the authority of God behind it. That this is not one of those loving suggestions. This is one of those times where I'm giving you orders that should define the way you walk through this world. What he's basically doing is commissioning Timothy into ministry. And that word order is the same word that the Greeks would have used 
to describe a military command. I command you, Timothy. And what he's commanding him is, he's saying, I'm leaving you here in Ephesus. I don't know if you remember the introduction to the series, but some false teachers had come into Ephesus and made a mess of the church. They had started teaching things that were not true, and people started believing those things, and it created all kinds of spiritual chaos in the church. One bad idea can do more damage than a bomb. A bad idea is poison to a community of people. And a lot of bad ideas had snuck in through the front door of this church. And Paul had done what he could to address it, but he was being called by God elsewhere. And so he left his young protege, Timothy, in charge. And this was him commissioning Timothy, saying, Look, dude, I am leaving you in a mess. You're going to have a big fight on your hands, and people around here are not going to give you a lot of respect. They're not going to make your job easier for you. And so I'm giving you this charge. Stand and fight. Don't back down. This is not going to be an easy assignment. And what Paul is saying to him is, buck up and understand that you have the authority to do this, but it will not, it will not come easily. And what Paul references is he says, remember also that prophecies were once made about you. What he's saying is this, I'm not giving you this command in isolation, but remember, he's probably remembering what happened when Timothy um, actually received his calling, his ordination in, in the first place. And that's recorded for us in, in 1 Timothy 4.14, that when he was ordained for ministry, some of the elders in the church gave prophecy over him, saying, we think this is how God's going to use you. We see things in you that God sees. And so he's saying, Timothy, remember, I'm not just giving you a command. God has already told you you're going to be able to do this. Remember that because from this point forward, your life as a Christian is going to feel like war. Now, how many of you guys, I'm just curious, would right now describe the season of life you're in as war? That it feels like battle? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand high. I mean, because... It's important for us to also be able to, to note you and pray for you. It is battle sometimes. Other times it feels like we're, we're sort of uh, getting the ammunition stacked in boxes and we're at the base cleaning house. But for some people, right now you're in a Timothy season. Every day you wake up, it feels like battle. Not en- There's not an inch of ground that comes easily. Everything is a struggle, and every day you wrestle with the temptation to wave the white flag and say the words, the second most American phrase, I can't do this anymore. If you're not the boss of me is the first phrase of the American spirit, I assure you the second motto is I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Uh-uh. Game over. And that unilateral decision to give up the fight is so easy to make. And so Paul gives him this charge. Now look, war is so often romanticized in our culture, isn't it? In literature, in fiction, in, um, in entertainment, even in video games. One of my favorite video games is a game simulating war. But as romanticized as war is, the reality of war is a lot more ugly and violent and horrific, isn't it? There's something in the hearts of young men that lusts for battle glory. You listen to the the talk and the attitude on the troop carrier on the way to the battlefield, it sounds way different 
than the sounds and the sights and the smells on the troop carrier coming from the battlefield. On the way to battlefield, everybody's mind is filled with visions of glory. They're standing on a heap of enemy bodies, firing their weapon, and nothing is hitting them. And everybody's waving the flag around them. We're charging and taking the enemy. And all our friends back home are saying, thank you for keeping us free. That's what they picture before the battle. But the reality of battle is it's ugly. It's horrifyingly costly. It is terrifying. Men wet their pants in battle. People die in battle. And that's the important thing to remember about spiritual warfare. A lot of young men who come and ask me, hey, I feel like I'm being called to ministry. I'm really excited about it. I'm saying, look, I share your excitement, but don't get too uppity about it. This spiritual warfare you're about to engage in, it's not all standing in front of stadiums of thousands while people adore every word that comes out of your mouth. It's not people dropping off a ham at your house because they're so grateful for the good advice you gave them. It is a lot of really, really inconvenient calls late at night when all you want to do is curl up in bed. It's a lot of agonizing conversations where you feel the full weight of a person's heartache and frustration and pain and hatred and anger. And they're spewing on you. They're projecting on you. They're dying in front of your eyes, and you love them, so you can't just blow it off and go, it sucks to be you. i got to go home. It's late. And even when you go home, you carry their heart and their story with you in your heart. It's people not fighting when they should fight, not loving God who died on the cross for them, saying, what has he ever done for me? It's you being discouraged as you watch somebody implode. It's hopelessness, it's rebellion, it's divorce. It's children saying to their parents, I hate your guts. I don't want to ever talk to you again. Sometimes it's an evening spent in a police station or in a hospital, in the very places you least want to be in that moment. And Paul understood That what he's inviting Timothy into is not some glorious highlight reel of wonderful moments of life transformation. Yes, it includes that. But it is also a lot of really, really long, difficult days. We're not going to win every battle, but we will win a great many of them. And there is glory in the battle, but there's also a lot of horror. I think that's why... The command hierarchy, the chain of command is so important to military success because the horror of the fight draws out of every soldier a deep desire to run for the hills. Only the insane are cackling in glee in the midst of all that death. Anybody you see laughing on the battlefield has lost his thinking mind. Okay, That's a crazy dude. That's not a person you want to go back to base with. The horror of battle makes people want to quit. It makes you want to save your own skin and abandon the fight. It makes you ask questions like, why am I here? Why do I need to be involved in this situation? That's why it matters so much that we are not engaged in ministry because we want to be good people. But we're engaged in ministry Because God, our Heavenly Father, our commanding officer, 
has commissioned and charged us to live this way. If you don't have an awe for the authority of God who calls you to stay, you and I will bail every time it gets hard. That statement, that feeling, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, it is most often said at the moment when a person stops believing in the power and authority of God. Because what they're saying is, I can't do it anymore, but now I don't think even God can do it anymore. Not only have I given up, I think he's given up. I don't believe him anymore. I don't have confidence in him anymore. I think he's left the building. We need to remember that the God who calls us to join the fight wins in the end. He has the right to charge us to remain on the battlefield even when the going gets tough. I think it's interesting that although ultimately it is God who calls us, look at this verse. Even though it's ultimately God whose authority stands behind the call, I think it's interesting that Paul uses the first person singular pronoun, I. He doesn't say I on God's behalf. He simply just says, look, Timothy, you know me. Everything I do, I do for Christ. And I now command you to stand and fight. And that's the tension in spiritual leadership, in doing life on life, is we want to make God very visible, but we want to lead in a way that doesn't make us irrelevant or invisible. It's important that the people I lead hear me say things too, that I'm not just a squawk box repeating what God says, but that because I represent him, I can also look at my brother and my sister and say to them, I also join with God in saying to you, this is how you must live. God calls, but very often he uses our voice to speak that calling into another person's life. And some people have not joined the fight because no other person has invited them to join. I want you to think about someone in your life in in whose life you have some influence and consider, is there something they're supposed to do that you're supposed to invite them verbally to do? Is it possible that God is waiting for you to entrust a holy command to another person's life? And maybe for those of you who are parents, one of those first people you need to do that to is your own child. To say to them, I don't just love you and support you, but in the Lord I command you my beloved child, to honor the Lord with your whole heart. This is not one of those negotiable moments in our lives. If you forget everything else I've ever told you, I charge you with my whole being to live this way. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. But it's love, it's faithfulness to speak the words. Now, if life is a fight... And each of us is being commanded, commissioned to join that fight. If life and ministry are spiritual battle, there's a right way and a wrong way to fight. There's a couple things that Paul points out that can easily derail our ministry. Let me give you those two things. One, he says, is if you, 
I'm sorry. If you reject faith, and the other is if you reject a good conscience. Let me unpack that a little bit. What he's saying is if life and ministry are spiritual battle, then one sure way to derail that battle, that ministry, is to lose your hold on your faith or to lose your hold on a good conscience. Even though we engage in spiritual battle, we will always do it as flesh and blood human beings. I am constantly aware of how human I am and yet how supernatural, how spiritual the work I do is because I am sitting in some rooms with people, listening to them unfold their hearts. And my trained ear, my masters of divinity having ear, can pick up on just how eternal, how significant these things are which they're saying to me. I realize the, the, the weight, the privilege of being in that room with those people in that moment. And that's the side of me that is alive in the spirit. But even at the same moment, there is a flesh and blood Asian American five foot five man named Dave Lee who's hearing the same words. And my fleshly ears and my fleshly mind are having a different reaction. And there is this inner battle in myself saying, Jesus, take over. Because I'm frustrated hearing this person share. I'm listening to them give me all the reasons why what they did was the right thing. And all I can think about is, it was not even close to the right thing. You are being so selfish. You are so full of yourself. You are ignoring the Christ who died for you. What gives you the right to treat other people like this? You sicken me. I don't think I'm thinking of that every time I'm talking to you. But do you understand that I, I'm simply being transparent? I cannot hear your words 1,000% as a man of God. I also hear them as a man. And there's a frailty in all of us that even though we touch heaven, we do so as fallen human beings, struggling to reconcile, how do I hear you as Christ hears you and silence this fleshly voice that's saying so many other things, that is having such a strong reaction. Raise your hand if you have children. Okay, I'm sorry if, if I'm leaving you out of this, but you can identify alongside with us. How many of you have raised your hand, love your children? And how many of you have had thoughts of hitting your children very, very hard? Yeah, that's right. The scaredy cats didn't raise their hand, but just imagine they all did. Because to have children is to love another being so deeply, and as soon as they start talking, to want to do violence to them <laughs> on a regular basis. I don't know what else to, how else to say it. That's, that's the struggle I'm talking about. To love your own child with every fiber of your being, and yet at the same time, want to make them feel the wrath of mom and dad. Tell them they're not allowed to act like that or say those things to you. That's the reality of spiritual warfare. Is to be so limited, so finite, that I hear you talk about your situation, and in my spirit I think, God is able. And in my flesh I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there's no hope. I can't fix this. I don't even know where to start. The brokenness runs so deep. The person you're involved with is so stuck, so wayward, so gone from the Lord, I don't even know how to call out to them. 
I am so frustrated and hopeless along with you that as your heart and your mouth are saying, I can't believe in God anymore, there's a side of me that wants to agree with you. And i got to be honest, sometimes you look at me as a pastor and say, fix it. I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't do that. I can't, I, that's a lot of pressure. I can't fix it. I'm freaking out right now too. I'm not showing it. But inside, I'm freaking out. And that's the reality of spiritual battle and ministry. It's to constantly say, God, where do we even start? If you are not here, we are all done. That's why faith is critical to ministry. In the midst of that hopelessness and powerlessness, the only way forward is to believe that God still reigns. That somewhere, somehow, though my eyes can't see it, God in heaven is able. If I ever forget that, I shouldn't even waste another person's time listening to them share their hearts. The minute I forget that truth, all hope is truly lost and the war is over. And so Paul says to Timothy, you will sit in conference rooms and in meetings that will get very contentious. People will drag your reputation through the mud. They will outright lie about what you've said and done. There will be no justice, no mercy aimed at you. And in those moments, in your heart, you will scream, I can't do this anymore. It's impossible. There's no way. And Paul says to Timothy, in that moment, don't you dare let go of faith in God. Because if you lose faith in God, you are shipwrecked. There's no place to go from there. All hope is lost. In the worst of moments, the one truth I can give you without hesitation is this. Even then, God is able. Even then, God is in control. And if we ever stop believing that, we have stopped knowing God. I'm not telling you you see that with your eyes, because the truth is, right now where I stand, your situation looks impossible. But just think back over the course of your life. Have there not been impossible things that God has done? And if he hasn't done them in your life, have you not at least heard the stories that others tell of this God who does the impossible. So that, that's the one thing to look out for, is don't lose your faith in the midst of spiritual battle. Here's the other thing that he says. Don't forfeit your good conscience. See, another thing about war is there are rules in war, but it's easy to break them. You've only got a little food and you've got a long march ahead of you and you've captured prisoners of war. The Geneva Conventions tell you you can't shoot those guys. But if they're going to eat your food and your guys might starve to death, those guys are going to get lined up at a ditch and shot in the back. That's just the way it is. Because war brings out the unjust, the ugly, the cruel, even in a person who used to be an English teacher back home. War is ugly, and in the chaos of war, out there on the streets, in the battlefield, in the lawyer's conference room, in the PTA meeting, wherever the fight is happening, there is this great temptation to forget who you are, forget who you serve, 
and just win this fight at any cost by any means available. People do it in marriage all the time. You know, I'm not a fool. I know that when, by the time you come to see me as a counselor, you've cleaned up your language and you're like, so the other day I was just totally like, oh, you made a mistake. Oh, boy, that's unfortunate, honey. Um, but you know what? You're just human. That's not how you said it when it was actually happening. You're like, you're an idiot. I should have listened to my mother. I should have never married you. What was I thinking? I should have married Roger. I don't know who Roger is, but every now and then, the veneer cracks and the real you comes out even in that counseling session. I see it. I hear it a little bit. Oh, there it is. That's how they really talk to each other when they're not sitting in front of the pastor. Oh, the F-bombs come out when Pastor Dave's not in the room. And that's the truth of it, isn't it? Then when we don't think anyone around can catch us, you don't have to be so good. I don't drive the speed limit on country roads driving down to U of I. I'm blazing through those fields like they think I'm a UFO. They're probably, there's aliens here. You know why? Because no one's going to catch me. There's no cop who's got nothing better to do than sit out there. And so I am just flying, like 115 miles an hour flying. I'm sorry, that's your pastor. I'm I'm not a good man. But isn't that the way we all are? Bill Hybels once wrote a book, and just the title alone is worth buying the book for. The, the, the book is called Character, Who You Are When No One Is Looking. Isn't that the truth? Who you are when no one is looking. I'm talking about how you really talk to your loved ones. Not the nice language that makes you sound like Dear Abby. You know, <laughs> you know it, it's, uh, it's the real language, the brutal, vindictive, hateful, spiteful language the language designed to wound because you alone know the soft spots, the vulnerabilities. You know what will really hurt that person and you are not afraid to bring it out. That's the thing about war is it brings out the ugly in us. It tempts us to forget who we are, to violate our own conscience, to want revenge, when God says, be reconciled, to want to judge when God says, do not condemn. And if you feel that tingle in your conscience, that little voice inside that says, this is not right, but you're angry, you're feeling entitled, you want vengeance, you're frustrated. And if at that moment you say, shut up, voice, you don't know what you're talking about. I get to do this now. It's my turn to be bad. It's my turn to violate a covenant. It's my turn not to give a crud about anybody else or anything else. It's my turn. The minute you say that, you're doing exactly what Paul describes. You're rejecting it. That word is pushing it away, saying, here comes that stupid conscience of mine. And we say to it, no, don't you dare try to make me feel bad today. No. I've gone through too much to care about what anybody else thinks of me. I get to do this today. It's my turn. I don't have to be good all the time. Nobody else does, so why should I? Are those words familiar? And we're pushing down, we're rejecting, pushing away that good conscience, which is the sign of God's life in us. And when you suppress it enough, 
it will fade and it will die. And the result is shipwreck spiritually. Not only does a good conscience get forfeited through moral violation, but it can also just be simply this. God said to be loyal to him. And sometimes in the heat of battle, out of fear for our reputation, our standing, we betray him at a personal level. It's like that time your parents came to a a PTA thing or whatever at school and you act like you didn't know them because you're embarrassed of your parents. It's that kind of moment of personal betrayal, of being so embarrassed of a person you're supposed to love that you try to distance yourself from them. It's the way my kids don't like their siblings to approach them in school in the hallway. Ew, come on. Be cool, man. It may be a joke in that setting, but it's real betrayal. And when we do it, we suffer in our conscience. There was a man named Thomas Cranmer. He was one of the reformers of the church in England, pulling it away from the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, trying to restore some of the theology that he really believed was true to the Word of God. He was best known for being the author of the Book of Common Prayer. That's one of the greatest contributions this man made. He lived in the the 1500s. And when Mary I took the throne in England, she was a loyalist to the Roman Catholic Church, and she restored the rule of Rome over the Church of England and began to persecute those who were trying to reform, including Thomas Cranmer. He was forced to watch many of his friends burned at the stake, which is one of the most horrible ways to die. Every historical account we have of people being burned at the stake, it's terrible. If you've ever held your hand over your grill a little too long, flipping a pork chop, and went, ow, think about sitting on top of that while that fire slowly gains heat and being cooked alive while others jeer you. Seeing that and watching the horrific scene, hearing the screams, smelling that burnt meat, it got to him. And they pressured and pressured him, saying, if you don't want to meet the same fate, you sign this recantation of your faith. So finally, after a great deal of pressure, to save his own skin, he signed That decision saved his life. It bought him about two more years of breathing. But the guilt on his conscience never left him. And finally, a couple years later, he couldn't take it anymore because he realized, though he's drawing breath, that's not the ultimate thing in life. To keep breathing is mammalian. It simply means you are a biological organism that hasn't been snuffed out. But to be alive once you know God is to stand true to him. And he could not bear the weight on his conscience. And finally, he wrote these words and repudiated his recantation. Here's what he wrote. Now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience, more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, 
which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life. And forasmuch as my hand has offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. He was saying, I'm ready to face the flames now. And because my right hand betrayed my loyalty to God who saved me, when I stand over that fire, it shall be the first to burn. And all history records that when Thomas Cranmer was burned at the stake and the fire starts from the outside and comes inward, he held his hand out until it was burned to a cinder. And throughout the entire burning of his hand, he shouted aloud, this unworthy right hand. So great was the weight of his conscience because he understood that only one God had ever loved him so much, had ever been so faithful to him. And he betrayed his conscience and betrayed his God simply to breathe a few more years. People who don't know God treasure and prize a few more days of breathing above everything else. Because for the godless mammal, that is all we have that we call life. It's just breathing and sleeping and eating and drinking. That's what life is for a mammal who doesn't know God. But for the one who knows God, to live is Christ. And to betray that Christ is a kind of death in itself. Now, I show you this story and this etching This is an etching from the 1790s of an event that happened in the 1550s. Is this still happening today? Isn't this so far from our reality? But just earlier this month, don't you remember the news stories in Umqua Community College in Oregon? I'm not even going to speak that shooter's name. He doesn't deserve to be named. But he walked into a crowded classroom and called out the Christians to identify themselves. And those who stood, he shot and he killed. And I've been haunted by that story since October 1st. It has bothered me so much. I can't stop thinking about it because that's so close to us. It's not a guy in the 1500s being burned at a stake. But I keep wondering if I were in that room. I mean, think about it. I've got four children. I've got a wife. I've got a a church family. I've got a calling. Would God not turn a blind eye to just one day where I breathe another day, I live to fight another day? Isn't that something in itself? Isn't that a kind of victory? And sometimes, yes, it might be. But I think about these people who stood up, and I think, God, I want you to give me that kind of conscience that kind of loyalty to you, that after the first person stood, I would still stand up and identify myself as one of yours. That's not an easy thing to think about. And I don't in any way want to use these people as a sermon illustration. That's not the spirit in which I'm sharing what they did. I hate the senseless way that they had to give up their lives. But I think our world is changing. I think it's changing in a way 
that it's not so far-fetched that one day you and I may be called to stand before other people and be loyal to Christ even unto death. I don't think it's so far away. I think you'd be surprised what our world will look like in 10 years. It's my prayer for us as a church that should it come to that, we would at least depart this earth having held on to a good conscience rather than breathe another day in shipwreck. I think that word shipwreck is a powerful image, and I'll close with this. Any of you gone sailing before? So I've sat on sailboats. Have any of you actually done the sailing part? Okay, that's pretty cool. That's one of my dreams is to learn how to sail a boat. Whenever I've sat on sailboats, I've always done it as a tourist. And so the mental image I have of sailing is sitting on a deck with a drink in my hand, feeling the wind as a soundless boat just cuts through the water. That's the picture I have of sailing. And the truth is, that's a big part of it. But when you're not on a tourist cruise boat, but if you're on a racing yacht or on a warship, it's amazing to watch the activity, the frenzied activity on the deck of that ship. What it reminds me of is that sailing a ship is not a passive activity. If you've ever watched the America's Cup coverage, any of you ever watched the America's Cup? Incredible, the high tech. But what I most find noteworthy is that nobody's sitting around, and even when they're sitting around like these guys, they're not looking at the dolphins. They're all trying to balance the boat so they don't tip over. Even sitting has purpose when you're at at this level of sailing. Guys are running constantly. There's this netting between the two hulls of the catamaran, and they're constantly running around. They're spinning this, they're ducking there, they're shouting out. It's chaos that's controlled. It's a marvel to watch how much intentionality and activity is required just to keep a sailing ship afloat. What Paul is saying is, it's that way in spiritual battle. The battle is like stormy, rough seas. It will toss your boat everywhere. If you are not vigilant in hanging on to a faith in a God who is able, if you're not vigilant in holding on to your good conscience, it's like sailors on rough seas who basically just go to sleep. We're done. I can't do this anymore. And that ship will not find its way to harbor on its own. It will shipwreck because a ship must be sailed. Even in fair weather, it's true, but especially in rough weather. A ship must be attended to or it will wreck. And I want to just remind you that that's the way it is with faith. You will not finish this life gray-haired and faithful to Jesus just because. Paul names two guys. This is so unpolitically correct, but he's like, hey, in my letter, listen, I want to just name specifically Two of these guys that just really ticked me off. Hymenaeus and Alexander, you know those two guys. I already gave them over to Satan. That just means, he said, if you want to be an enemy of God, go out from here and live among the enemies of God until you learn not to blaspheme. Excommunication. And he names these two guys, but you know what's amazing is in Acts 20, when he's saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus, these two men were among those elders whom Paul loved. These were his friends. 
trusted compatriots, men he loved. And yet, they turned. It's a harsh reminder that nobody is immune to shipwreck. That just because you sat as a leader of the church, an ordained elder, a partner in ministry, does not mean somehow that status safeguards your soul forever. Faith requires attention. And with neglect, shipwreck comes. That's one of the great things we do in Life on Life, is to constantly spur each other on and say, look, don't stop fighting. Don't ignore your conscience. Don't give up on a God who is able. Keep steering the ship. Put out the sails. Don't neglect your faith. Because if you do, no matter who you used to be, you can end up in shipwreck, just like these elders. It's a good reminder for me. Because I've watched a lot of my colleagues, men I loved and respected, men under whose ministry I was saved, I was raised up, I was taught. I've watched them abandon their God, abandon their ministry, abandon their families, abandon their faith. And it breaks my heart and it terrifies me. It brings me to my knees begging God to watch over my faith. And I also pray for those I serve with that God would watch over them as well. Do you get what I'm saying? Life on life ministry is not icing on the cake. It is a matter of the survival of our church. Our church is not going to make it without life on life ministry. It's not going to make it. We will join the rank of thousands and thousands of churches that once were strong and shipwrecked because of neglect. I'm not being dramatic. I'm saying to us, it matters that each one of us answers the call to engage. It matters. And I want to ask you, each of you, to hear this as a personal challenge to your own heart. And let God tell you what needs to happen from there. Would you join with me in prayer? Let's bow together. For some of us, I think what's on our heart is, I wish somebody would come to me. And I get that. It's a valid desire that someone would come and do life on life, pouring into my life. And ask God. He will hear that prayer, and he will send someone in time. Ask. Ask in humility. Ask as a statement of need. God, I need someone to pour into me. Will you send someone? I promise you, in time, God will answer that prayer. But I also know this, in this very moment, just as you are, you also are able to pour into someone else. And in fact, there's probably someone right now in your life yearning for you to pour yourself into them. You may think everything's cool in that relationship, but it's not. They're, they're longing for more from you. And God is inviting you now to hear that and to respond. So I'm going to give us a minute just to deal with the Lord, have him deal with us. In the quiet of this moment, let him speak. Listen.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.